Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall with MarketScale, and we're glad that you found us today. Our guest on this episode is Courtney Ostiff. She is a veteran teacher, and she is going to talk to us a little bit today about uh, the book that she wrote, The Teaching Online Handbook. Courtney, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. How are you doing? Excellent. I'm very excited to talk with you. Um, And before we jump into my many questions, uh, if you could just give our audience a little bit of background on yourself and why uh, you wrote this book. Well, actually, it was kind of an accident, which is kind of the same way that I fell into teaching, specifically online teaching. Actually, as a graduate student at West Virginia University, I was getting a master's degree in public administration, again, not related to teaching, Um, but (laughs) right. But my boss at my graduate assistantship got a grant from the Department of Commerce, again, not related to education, (laughs) um, to teach online classes to the general public about how to use computers. Now, keep in mind, this is in 1999 she got this grant, right? And so that winter, I got hired on uh, with the graduate assistantship, for which I was extremely grateful. And you know how graduate assistants are. They're like, here, go do this thing. You do this thing and you do this thing. And one of the things she told me to do was to teach an online class. And I was like, what? Remember, this is the winter of 2000, right? And so... (laughs) um, I had the luxury of having live video conference facilities way back when, and it was, it's, there's a whole story behind it, but essentially I did what everybody else did last spring, which was I stood up in front of the camera and I held up a book and I said, and I read the book, (laughs) this is because this is, you know, what we do, or we, you know, where you stand in front of the board and you draw the board. And I was terrible. I was really horrible at it, but nobody said anything because nobody knew anything about teaching online 20 years ago, right? And I fell into it after I graduated. I was temping and I got a job with the University of Phoenix teaching online college algebra classes. And this was so long ago that the World Wide Web was still a wee bitty baby. And we took most of those classes through um, news groups, which is like Reddit if it was not on the web. And I learned a lot about teaching and I fell into it and I've kept on doing it ever since. That is probably one of the best introductions that we've ever had on the show. So thank you for that. Um, And so I can ask you not just the evolution of online teaching in the last year of 2020 and the pandemic, but give our audience a little sense of the evolution you've seen in the last 20 years from where you started at very humble beginnings, the news groups. Um, How has online teaching, you know, evolved here, let's say between then and uh, 2019? 
it's for the better. <laughs> we'll just we'll put it like that. It's nowhere to better. go but up, right? <laughs> nowhere to go but up. When I started out way back when, my college algebra students had to use the equation editor in Microsoft Word to type in their algebra homework. And they were typing in like 20 or 30 problems a day and uploading that to the news group. And then I had to download it and turn my font into red and mark it up for them each student and I had 18 students at a time two classes at a time for nine weeks and upload that back to the news group so that they could see my comments can you imagine anything more awful <laughs> and time consuming very time consuming I worked really hard for that money and they worked really hard for that education now the other thing that's interesting to know is I was working with adults right who you would think would be more motivated but remember the University of Phoenix is a for-profit organization and this was a huge percentage of them had never they were the first person in their family to go to college and they were very often low income and they were very often single parents or young parents who are working full time jobs and raising kids and going to college on the side. And they were extremely stressed. And I really have to say, cutting my teeth on that kind of teaching situation without any synchronous link to my students whatsoever uh, really helped make me a better teacher. I can only imagine. And, and I'm a guessing that a lot of that experience is what fast forward to today um, has kind of helped shape this book um, and the contents. Yeah. So what I found was that when the pandemic hit and everybody switched to online teaching, they immediately went to like Zoom or Google what it, Google meets or hang out or whatever. And they just wanted to like put the camera on and do all the things they did in the classroom. But it doesn't work like that. I mean, you can do it, right? You, it's, you can do anything you want, really. But it doesn't do it. it doesn't, it's not effective. Let's put it like that. It's not an effective way to do online teaching. There are some other things that you can do. There are other principles that you can do. And there are other ways that you can be sensitive to students' needs other than getting that nonverbal feedback that you get in a face-to-face -face classroom. Because I've taught in a face-to-face -face classroom as well. I've been a public school teacher. I've been a public school special education teacher. I have worked in home as early intervention doing birth to three. You know, I've had a wide variety of experience. And it's just a whole different skill set. And so I often get asked the question, well, which is better, online learning or in-person learning? And, and I say that's the wrong question. There's good and bad online learning, and you should strive for the good. And there's good and bad on-site, on in-person training as well and, and learning. Um, and you shouldn't settle for, you know, subpar in-person training. When regarding online education, you know, can it be done well? And how can it be done well? I absolutely think it can be done well. I mean, I wouldn't do it if I didn't think I was doing something well. Right. <laughs> you know, I have other career options, you know. Um, but I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I I love my job. I absolutely 100% love my job. And I love teaching online. I love that I can have students from Alaska and France and Abu Dhabi and Australia all in the same class. And they bring such a rich background to, you know, for example, my world geography class that I taught last semester. It's absolutely wonderful. And is it as good as a face-to-face -face class? 
I absolutely feel like it has to be every bit as good, if not better, because remember, public schools are free. If they don't like my class, they can just turn around and walk down to the nearest public school and enroll. They don't have to be there. And I work on, um, shall we say, a one-to-one student basis. It's not a school where you sign up and they assign you classes. It's an a la carte thing. So if students sign up for my class and they don't like it, they have a month to say, no, I don't like this. And then they just leave and I don't get paid. So <laughs> you have to do a good job. Uh, and so that, that'll hone your teaching skills really fast. So let's dive into some of the contents of the book. Uh, what are what can a reader expect um, that they will get out of this book? And what, what is some of the, I guess, chapters or uh, sections of the book? So I created this class like which created this book like I would teach a class. So I set it up with an introduction about myself and then I defined my terms. I talked about the tools that they'll need to do the job. I talked about the way that they can use those tools in dealing with students. I talked about common online assignments, and then I talked about how they can use all of that stuff they've learned, put it together to make a class, and then I walk them through creating a class from beginning uh, to middle to end, and we end with the assessment. And what would you say is the biggest challenge facing teachers that have not traditionally been uh, teaching online and having to make this shift in, in 2020 and for many here in the this semester and, and possibly beyond? Well, the mistake that I see people making over and over and over and over, I was reading Twitter earlier today, is that thinking that if you just stick to as close as you can to face-to-face education, that that'll be better teaching online. And it's just not true because it's not about what you do in that Zoom session. The most important part of an online class is what happens offline. And it's really hard to wrap your head around. It's also really hard to wrap your head around the need to change from planning by the unit to planning by the content folder. It's very difficult, I think, for a lot of people. And and elaborate on that a little bit more. So I follow what's the, the content folder and how does that, how do, how do you make that transition in thinking? So... If you're computer savvy, you understand that a computer has a hard drive, like the C drive, right? And there are folders in the C drive. Yeah. You know, like you have your documents and your music and your pictures and whatever. And you open that up and then you have subfolders and you open that up and you have subfolders and blah, 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 blah. Right. In a learning management system or an LMS, you can create folders. I call them content modules. And I create a content module for every week of every class. And then, and you can do content folders for different groupings. You know, you could do it by the unit or whatever. But in my considerable experience, I have found that most people think of the week. I mean, it's on our calendar. We teach kindergartners how weeks work, right? And so I create a schedule for all of my students based on that week. And in each week, For each week, I have a content folder and they can open that up and everything they need is in that content folder. And 
And the majority of the assignments are meant to be done without my direct supervision, which is really hard, I think, as a classroom teacher, because you tend to think of teaching as being right there with the student. But in an online class, you have to prepare all this material and grant it, push it out to the student. It's a very different mindset. And I know a lot of teachers had used a flipped classroom or dabbled with that. Um, in Foley Online, do you still proponent uh, doing the instruction piece, the lectures, if that's a part of your course with pre-recorded video, or do you do that during live time? Um, and I guess ultimately, what is the best use of the, the live time that you do have? In my experience, the best use of the lifetime is two things. One, to answer student questions. So, of course, you have to set up the preconditions to get them to trust you enough with their questions, right? That's a different ball of wax. But to answer student questions and to present new material in a way that they have a good enough grasp of it that when they're on their own doing their work, that they understand it well enough that they can get it done. And that is a very difficult proposition. Yeah, that sounds easier said than done. And I, I'm guessing a lot of that comes with trial and error and experience to figure out how to best do that for your specific student population. You know, I find it really interesting that the same principles for good teaching that apply in a face-to-face -face classroom apply in an online synchronous classroom. You know, you want to start out with that hook, whether it's a background story or um a, a graphic design element that you want to fill in, right? And then you you review old material, you know, you do that retrieval practice, and then you introduce new material building on that old material, and then you do the I do, you demonstrate it, the we do, you have them do it with you, preferably with faded worked examples. And then when you're satisfied that they have gotten the we do down, that the whole class got 100% participation and comprehension, then you say, them off to do the work. So in that sense, it's really not that different. The actual process of getting it done can be a little tricky, but the bare bones of it are actually very similar. I think that's probably pretty encouraging for a lot of our uh, teachers listening and instructors listening. Um, you, you mentioned that that is a little tricky. Uh, do you have some tips and tricks that, that might be helpful for our audience? You know, when I teach in a face-to-face -face classroom, it's pretty much second nature to, you know, go stand next to that student who's clearly off topic, give a raised eyebrow to the one who is, you know, throwing spitballs. You, know, <laughs> you do that non-verbal body language, right, to help control the classroom. But you don't have that advantage in an online synchronous class. And it's disconcerting to a lot of skilled, expert, veteran teachers because they do it without thinking about it. And they, and when you are teaching in a classroom, you are center on the stage, right? You demand that attention. You get that attention. You use that attention. In a synchronous session, they continue out and there's not a whole, whole lot you can do about it. So you need to do a couple things. One, you need to create that expectation that they're going to come to class and you expect them to be in class and you're going to make it a positive experience to be in class. Shame is not a real good effective tool here. You can't, you know, humiliate or shame them into behaving because they'll just tune out and they're going to go watch YouTube videos. So it has to be relentlessly upbeat and positive. 
And then the other thing is you have to keep pinging their attention because the internet is inherently distracting. And you have to assume that if you are not pinging their attention, they are going to be out there and they're not going to remember anything that you say. So typically, I, when I build my content for a synchronous class, I build in a whole class participation every slide, approximately every three minutes, even if it's just how well do you understand this and get some metacognition going in. I want them to come back to the class and participate, even if it's just that much. And that's really, really important. And speaking of class participation, um, how long should an online class be? And maybe does that vary based on the age of the students? Well, to be real honest, I don't get I don't get a choice. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you had a choice. So if I had a choice, if I had a choice, I would make them about 25 minutes each. Uh, about the length of a good podcast, right? Uh, I I think that online, that is the maximum amount of live attention that you can get. Now, if you're doing it asynchronously, you're doing a recorded video, it must be much, much shorter, maximum six minutes. Probably you need to say everything that you can say in three minutes. And that lines up with research uh, that shows two to five minutes on a recorded video is is the sweet spot. Anything past eight is the danger zone and 12, everyone will tune out. There's no chance, no matter how <laughs> engaging you are, uh, you could be a famous speaker and, and 12 minutes is is the max. Um, and even think of a TED talk, I think they go 18 and those are typically pretty high level speakers, right? Um, I don't even watch them. I just read the transcripts. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, so if you, you're required to teach for an hour or more, um, then maybe would you recommend breaks every 25 minutes or so or a hands-on activity to change things up? If you do get stuck with a longer period of time and there's not much flexibility, what can a teacher do to, um, to I guess, reset the attention every so often? So I have 50 minute periods. Now I don't have 50 minute periods every day. I have for a math class, I teach algebra one and 32 50 minute periods. That's all I get. So we are intense on time the whole time. I don't have time to waste. I have a whole little opening ritual I do. Students bring me questions. We go over the questions. Um, and then we launch into the new material and I do two lessons per time. So generally by the time we answer new questions and I do a wrap up at the end, that gives me mm, maybe 40 minutes. So I got 20 minutes per concept. And in that 20 minutes, I have to do the we do. And the we do is really where I get their attention. Um, so for example, with my pre-algebra students, I had, um, 10 minutes today of spur of the moment problems that I made up and they went to it with a will on the board. Now, remember, these are eighth graders, right? So most of them, they're 12, 13, 14. And a lot of these students are difficult to tune, you know, get to tune in. They love writing on the board. And so I make a real high intensity activity. They line up virtually and they are really excited about getting to do it. Now, I don't require all students to right on the board because there are students who suffer who suffer from critically you know um, debilitating social anxiety and that's the reason why they're in an online class every year i have four or five students almost all girls who don't do any participation in a live class never turn on their mic never turn on their camera and yet 
they are fantastic students. These are my 95, 96, 97, 98% students. And you know what? I'm okay with that. If they need to come and participate and only communicate with me via email or a phone call and they're still getting their work done and they're doing a good job, I'm okay. We're all right. It's fine. And I think that's been one of the silver linings of the, the pandemic is a lot of students that struggled with in-person teaching because of uh, the reasons you mentioned earlier or other reasons have actually th thrived in the online learning environment. And so um, what advice or can we take this moving forward to help accommodate for students better depending on their learning styles? I think it's important to offer students a variety of ways to get in contact with you, even in the face-to-face -face classroom, even if they're not brave enough to raise their hand. I would advise having an anonymous comment box that they could slip a piece of paper in on their way out the door. And I would, I would make a habit of it. Like, okay, everybody, you know, write up your comment for the day, dump it in the comment box so they don't feel, you know, special, like their eyes on them. But what I find is that those anonymous uh, surveys, and I do them in my online classes um, about six weeks into the semester, really have been incredibly helpful with me for refining my teaching. And you said make a habit of it, and that reminded me earlier when you talked about your your 50 minutes and it's really structured. Is that another best practice is to have a structure that's consistent so that your learners, your students know what's going to be happening to some degree each time you guys meet online? Not only when we meet online, but in throughout the whole class, Harry Fletcher Wood said that there are three parts to creating a habit, uh, you know, repetition, context, and reward. My classes are set up the same way every week, without fail, invariably, all year long. It never changes. Every Monday, they have a discussion question due. Every Wednesday, they have two responses to other students due. Every Friday, they have an assignment. Every day, they have offline assignments that they have to do, and they don't turn in to me, right? I assess it on Friday. If they didn't do that offline assessment, that offline assignment, they're not going to do well in the assessment. But having that repetition means that by about the sixth week of the semester, they never have to ask me what's due. They never have to ask me where to find the assignments because it's always in the content folder. They never have to ask me how to do it because I only use about a half dozen assignments all year long and they know exactly where and how to do every one. It's the content that varies, not the context. I love that. And how would you recommend doing that? Because a lot of our teachers out there have a hybrid classroom. Some students, especially in higher ed, some students are on site and some students are online. How do you juggle between the two and keep that consistency? Is there a slightly different set of rules for the online students and the in-person students? Um, how would you advise on a, a professor or an instructor navigating a hybrid classroom? I would make the assignments due online just as well in a face-to-face -face classroom as I would in an all online classroom, because that way no students are advantaged or disadvantaged. Everybody can be, you know, equal in that regard. But also that way, when you do the online, uh, the synchronous session, um, the students in your face-to-face -face classroom can, they can either 
depending on how you have it set up, they can participate with laptops or maybe you have a camera and a video conferencing thing going on. Uh, or maybe you're wearing headphones and you've got one, you know, like um, in a call center where they're only on one side and you have a boom mic on that so that you can allow the students who are online to reach you just as well as the students who are face to face. But again, I would set it up with content modules. I would set it up with regular weekly assignments and make that repetition part of your class face to face or online. I love it. And earlier, I think you'd mentioned practical hands-on experiences is always helpful. Um, th that kind of speaks to what you do offline is just as important or more important than the time that you have online together. Yeah, absolutely. Because here's a subtle thing that I think a lot of teachers who are used to teaching face-to-face -face find incredibly frustrating. Again, remember, in a face-to-face -face classroom, you can use nonverbal body language to help run the room. And it's important and it's good. And, and that's wonderful when you can do it, but you can't do that in, a, in an online classroom. So the thing is, especially for K-12 students, the person who's in charge of making sure that work gets done is not you. It's the parents or whoever's watching the student, if the student is even being watched. I have had 12-year-olds who hopped the city bus downtown to the mall to catch off the Wi-Fi in the food court to come to class, right? These students are not being well supervised. So you need to make sure that the things that you assign offline are written to the student, which is a term of art, and that they can do it independently and that it's easy enough to be done, that they can do it by themselves and mom and dad don't have to get involved. And you have to push it out in time so that mom and dad can plan for those students to have that internet access. Now remember, because I teach at a private learning services provider, I'm dealing with, you know, a, a fairly wealthy subset of students. Even those students do things like have one SIM chip for four siblings and the siblings swap it out to come to class. Or mom works from home and the student is at home and they're swapping SIM chips back and forth so that they can come to class. Or they walk to grandma's house a half mile away to get Wi-Fi. So it's you have to make sure that the bulk of the work is done offline and it's set up and pushed out in such a way that it's easy for families to help students get it done. And in the family schedule, and you have to make sure that it's written to the student so the student can do it independently without mom and dad's help. That's a lot of work. That is a lot of work, um, and and it is replicatable uh, once you do it once. I would imagine you can use those those templates and content pieces you put together. Uh, but I'm glad you brought up parents because parents have played a a bigger role in a lot of cases than ever before in 2020. Um, and teachers connecting with parents has in some ways been more challenging, but in other ways been more accessible. I've heard a lot of positive stories from parents saying they've connected more with their children's teachers in 2020 than they ever have before. Um, what advice would you give to teachers, instructors on the parent side of things, how to connect, how to welcome them into the process and um, not having to rely on them, but, but, you know, making them a part of the learning process. 
So there are a couple things. One is assume that your synchronous class, your recordings, that everything is being broadcast to the TV in the living room so that everybody can see everything. Because that happens. <laughs> Trust me, that happens a lot. So you cannot just assume like mom and dad aren't there. You have to conduct your class as though mom is sitting in the back of the classroom because she basically is or grandma or whoever it is. So that's one thing is to keep that in mind. The other thing is that you really have to learn to be respectful of family time. I never, ever assign anything to be due on the weekend or to be worked on over the weekend. That's family time. Uh, and it's really important that you respect the family's needs, especially in terms of scheduling. I never, ever, ever assign something in a synchronous class to be due that evening or even that week or even the next week. People know what to expect. They know how to make the plans and it's respectful of family's time because they know what to expect from the class. So that's, that's a thing. And the other thing is that in a lot of ways, you just kind of have to trust them. You can't be disparaging of parents. You have, And I think I get a lot of it from my mom was a child protective services worker the whole time that I was a kid. She eventually switched to teaching and retired as from being a teacher. But one of the things that she said when I was 13 or 14, and I always stuck with me, because remember, she was the person who would make the determination whether or not to remove the child from the home for abuse or neglect. And she said, you know, honey, Every parent loves their child. They may not be able to express it in the best way, but every parent loves their child and they always want the best for that child. And it's true. You know, even though the, va <laughs> even, even when kids have what we would consider horrendous family lives, if you assume the best of parents and you assume that they're worthy of respect and you treat them in a way that's respectful, they will do the same to you. And you can get a lot further with that attitude. Absolutely agree. That's a great point. Um, we're coming up to the end of our time here, but I want to end on a, a high note as far as a success story that uh, you've seen in 2020 uh, going into 21. Uh, it could be your class or other teachers that you've worked with. What would be a, a hopeful story for our audience to take uh, at the end of this episode? So the person who actually suggested that I write a book uh, was my friend North, who is a teacher at a private school in New York City. And North and I met on Twitter. And I, when this whole thing hit in March, I was like, oh, hey, I do this. I ask me anything, you know. <laughs> and North said, hey, you know what? You should write a book. And I said, North, you're very funny. He said, no, really, you should write a book. And I said, oh, well, okay. And a lot of the content in the book came out of my conversations with North because he helped me understand what people need. And we've kind of kept in touch over the fall and over the summer as well. And I watched as North set up his classroom to be, you know, online and face to face and hybrid because we none of us knew what to expect in the summer, you know. And it's been a real joy to me to watch North become confident and competent and really help his entire school uh, weather this in a great position. And I have no doubt that the students in North School are doing really well. And I'm really proud of watching that happen, that they're getting the best um, online and remote and hybrid and face-to-face -face education that they can. So that's been wonderful. And I would like to 
share one tiny story. You know, in an online teaching environment, you don't really get to see your students very often. You don't see that light bulb moment. And so it's really when you get that email from a student a couple of years down the road and they're like, hey, I just wanted to let you know it's really meaningful. And last spring, I got an email from a student who was um, taking a, a college class in high school. She was wanted to take a, a, an English class, but in order to be admitted, she had had to take the Compass, which is a college like admission skills test, you know, and on the basis of my Algebra 1 class, she had placed into not remedial math, but college algebra. And I was so proud of her. And you know what's interesting? She wasn't even one of my best students. She was just like an average student. And I was like, wow, this works. It can really work. So yeah, they're good stories all the way around. I love that. And so many times the the best story is the student that you helped advance, whether that was from low performing to average or average to high or high to even higher. Um, it, it's more about meeting each student where they're at. And so that's a, a great story uh, to end on. I, I want to ask one last question, if I could. Um, mm-hmm. Given all of your experience and, you know, the, all the change you've seen in, in 2020 kind of across the board, as we possibly get back to some kind of new normal next fall, what do you hope that we continue to do um, if we do get past this pandemic at some point um, that continues to incorporate online learning with the traditional on-site teaching that we've grown accustomed to in the past? I think that if we become accustomed to more parents knowing what goes on in the classroom on a day-to-day basis. We come, we become comfortable with it. We trust that it's a good thing and we trust that parents are interested. I think that can only do better by our students and, and ourselves for our teaching skills and, and families for trusting schools. I think that would be a great thing. I love it. Well, thank you again, Courtney, for joining us. We really appreciate your time on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you asking me in. It's been a great time. And thank you, as always, to my audience uh, for joining another episode. We really appreciate uh, your participation and your comments online and your emails to us. Uh, Check out past episodes on our website, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again, and always keep learning. Thank you.